This is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, September 27, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. I'm Buster only working from my home in Montana. Bruce Baldwin has joined us. He's working from back in Connecticut, and so is Dan Stanzik, who is pitch hitting again with Taylor getting more tests on his broken foot. You think he's kind of playing up to this a little bit, you know, take a little the midweek break? Buster, I don't know what's going on. This is two Wednesdays in a row. I, I mean, Taylor likes to think of himself as this big deal producer nowadays. Maybe he thinks he's like Howard Stern, where he doesn't have to work on Wednesdays anymore. His week's shorter than us because he's such a big deal. I don't know. We'll see what happens next Wednesday, but this is two in a row for me. Yeah, uh, and uh, I think we're going to have to ask him all that on Friday when he returns to the podcast, but maybe he'll take Friday off. Who knows? Uh, when he does come back on Friday, I'm going to ask him about his memories of Brooks Robinson, the Hall of Fame third baseman, passed away on Tuesday at age 86. Uh, he made 18 All-Star appearances over a 23-year career, spent exclusively in Baltimore. He was a member of the franchise's 1966 and 1970 World Series championship teams. He retired after the 1977 season and was a first ballot Hall of Fame pick in 1983. He is widely considered to be the greatest fielding third baseman ever. Uh, and, you know, I covered the Orioles for the Baltimore Sun for a couple of years. I talked to him on the phone a couple of times, was around him when he was around the team. And what you heard universally was, yes, he was an amazing baseball player, but he was an even better person you know, late last night, I was talking with Buck Showalter, the former Orioles manager, and he, he mentioned about how he brought Brooks in to talk to the players and how much the players responded to him. He was such a warm person. Jim Palmer, longtime teammate of Robinson, struggled to talk about his old friend before the Orioles broadcast last night. You know, we would trade phone calls. I'd call him, and two weeks later, he'd get back to me. <laughs> but, you know, you know, I got here when I was 19. Brooks got here when, when you know, 18, 1955. Yeah. So we, I think maybe he always knew what it's like to be in the big leagues at 19. And then I think when you get to the big leagues, you know, you got to get here, you got to stay here, you got to figure out how to get better. And then you got to decide who you want to be like. And for all of us, you know, who knew, you know, we knew him, he was the best. So, um, you know, and just, you know, the little things. Uh, everywhere I'd go, you know, I'd, I'd get a Brooks, there'd be an autograph ball, and I'd, Brooks's name would be on it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I used to tell him, I said, how come you write, write, write so big? Because it yeah. was a big city. But everywhere I'd go, people would go, God, we all know he's a great player. He won 16 gold gloves, but we also know um, what how special a person he was. So the Orioles played in Camden Yards last night against the Nationals, and in the bottom of the first inning, Gunnar Henderson gave the Orioles a lead. Ray to the plate. Henderson hits it in the air, deep right field. Thomas back on the track in front of the wall, and it will escape, and it's gone. That one's for you, Brooks. That sound from WBAL. Here was the final call on the Orioles' 1-0 victory. One and two, two outs. Cano ready to work. He deals. And it's a swing and a miss. Strike three. Yanir Cano strikes out this side of the ninth inning. And on a day where you were playing for number five, you won it one to nothing against the Nationals. And the Orioles' magic number to clinch that American League East, it is down to two. Now, this morning, I have not confirmed this, uh, 
But when I was on SportsCenter this morning talking about Brooks Robinson, David Lloyd, the anchor on the early SportsCenter, mentioned a statistic that Brooks Robinson had the most games in his career in which he drove in the only run in a 1-0 victory. And that it was absolutely appropriate, and it was appropriate that that was the score of the Orioles game last night. Baltimore is trying to hold off the Tampa Bay Rays at the top of the American League East. The Rays face the Red Sox. And Tampa Bay blew out the Red Sox early. Rays trying to win their 96th game of the year, and they've got a handful in front. 1-1. Swing and a drive in the air to deep left center field. Headed toward the monster and gone. Just to the right of it. A home run for Rene Pinto. That's his sixth of the year. It makes it a four-run fourth, and it is 7-0 Tampa Bay. That from 620 WDAE. At the end of the day, Orioles two and a half games ahead of Tampa Bay in the East. Three in the loss column. In the wild card race, the Blue Jays faced the Yankees in Toronto. And in the top of the ninth inning with a score 0-0, rookie Austin Wells picked a great moment to hit his first career homer. Skies run deep to left field. Going back, Varsho still back. Turning, looking, see ya. And opposite field, two-run home run for Austin Wells. And the Yankees lead 2-0. That from the Yes Network. Texas was blown out by the Angels last night, 93. This was after the Yankees 2-0 win over Toronto. And along the way, in that Texas game, Corey Seager was hit by a pitch. The Rangers announced he suffered a right forearm contusion. Initial x-rays did not reveal a fracture. This is something worth watching later today. So Texas did not gain ground. And meanwhile, the Astros and Mariners played game two with their series in Seattle. And it did not go well for Houston. Club to right field. It sends Tucker back on the wall. He leaps and he makes the catch. The gold Glover reels it in. Ford hustles into third. It's over Bregman and it's into the crowd. The Mariners get a run. Late night little league at T-Mobile Park and the Mariners are in front. It's one to nothing. Yeah, so the Astros are throwing the ball all over the place. George Kirby pitch well. The final score there was Mariners six, Astros two. They play the final game of their series today. Framber Valdez pitching for Houston. And at the moment in the wild, wild west, Texas is two and a half games ahead of Houston. And the Astros are just a half game ahead of Seattle. The Rangers and Mariners, remember, have that huge four-game series that starts Thursday in Seattle. In the National League, the Phillies, the Pirates, it was two all, bottom of the 10th inning, when a rookie walked it off for the Phillies. One ball, two strikes on Rojas. Bednar ready the pitch. Swing and a ground ball up the middle. It's a base hit. Sawinski coming on. He fields. Pache coming home. The throw. It's not in time. And the Phillies walk him off and walk into the postseason as Johan Rojas, the rookie, has won it. That was from Sports Radio 94 WIP. So the Phillies, having clinched a playoff spot, they will be the number one wildcard seed, celebrated like crazy in their clubhouse, well-earned. Phillies manager Rob Thompson talked about what the team has been able to accomplish this season. We were resilient last year. This club is unbelievable. They are tough. They play till the end. They play every out. Uh, and they're together. You can see how they are here. They love it. They actually love each other. And that's what that's what gives us everything that we have right now. Bryce Harper, the Phillies first baseman, talked about making the playoffs again. That was great. You know, I mean, just being able to get back and understand that this is what it's all about. We just wanted to get in, get in the dance and, and play it. And uh, anything can happen. You know, we're just excited to be able to play. Hopefully this game 
for these next, you know, couple games at home and, uh, I mean, being able to just, just get in. That's all we want to do, just get in and, and give us that opportunity. Bryce was asked, what are you looking forward to in this year's playoffs? Winning that World Series. That's it. I mean, that's plain and simple. That's, that's all we want to do. Um, we weren't able to do it last year, but you know, we're going to take it one game at a time like we did and, you know, get into it and, you know, hopefully uh, have some fun on broad. The Brewers were trying to wrap up the National League Central yesterday. And before that game against the Cardinals, Cardinals manager Ollie Marmol announced that Adam Wainwright will not pitch again this season. But as our, our friend Derek Gould wrote on Twitter, nobody is ruling out the possibility that Wainwright might take an at-bat this weekend against the Reds if there's a situation that doesn't impact the pennant race. As this game played out, it was Tommy Edmond who provided the coup de grace for the Cardinals. The pitch to Edmond, a swing, and there's a drive deep. Right center field, way back to the wall. It's a gunner! Tommy Edmond goes into his home run trot. Edmond with his 13th home run of the year. Hitting as many as he did last year. A two-run inning for the Cardinals, 4-1 to Redbirds. That from the Cardinals radio network. So the Brewers lost yesterday, and they needed help if they were going to clinch the division from the Atlanta Braves, who fell behind early to the Cubs. The Cubs were a big but the Braves began to come back. Here was Ronald Cooney Jr. in the bottom of the seventh. One-two pitch on the way. There's a fly ball to deep right field. Going back to the wall, Suzuki. Rattled into attack mode. It's a two-run homer. And the Braves make them pay for that walk. You're looking for trouble. You came to the right place. And it is a one-run ball game here in the bottom of the seventh. That from 680, the fan. So in the bottom of the eighth inning, the Braves had a couple of runners on base. There was an easy fly ball hit to right field. This is what happened. Here was the call on 680, the fan, Atlanta. And a 3-2. Swung on a fly ball out towards right center field. Suzuki over to his right with room. He dropped it. He dropped the ball. Two-run score. Oh, my. He was right there. And Suzuki lost it. What a break for the Braves, and they have the lead. That same play, that crazy play. Here was the call in the Cubs radio network. The 3-2 pitch from Smiley. A swing and a fly ball, right center field, playable. Suzuki drops the ball. Two-run score. Atlanta takes the lead. Suzuki lost it in the lights, I believe. He reached for it. Both runners score. The Braves take a 7-6 lead. The Brewers clinched the National League Central with that Cubs loss. And after the game, Craig Council spoke with his players. This team's built for October. And winning the division is the first step. The goal, the first goal is done. How many celebrations we got left? Four. Let's get Matty Arnold. The GM brought a lot of you guys here. Let's douse it. That sound from Bally Sports, Wisconsin. Kristen Yelich spoke in the midst of the celebration about the story of the 2023 Brewers. We've been a playoff team five times in the last six years. We've won three divisions, but but each group's its, its own thing, you know, and the story for this team is, is unwritten still, and we have a chance to do something special, and once you're in the postseason, it doesn't matter if you're the favorite, the underdog, everybody has a chance, and you just got to play well in that sprint and, and see what happens. The Diamondbacks are right in the middle of the National League wildcard chase. They face the White Sox, and they were actually down early in this game, 
but they mounted a huge inning in the top of the fifth. And the 2-1. Swing, line drive, right field. That's a base hit. Headed towards the gap. Carroll's going to score. Marte's behind him. That ball's all the way to the wall. Pham getting the wave around third. He's going to score. Walker digging for three. He dives in safely. Three-run triple. And it's 7-4, Diamondbacks. That from Arizona Sports, 98.7 FM. The Diamondbacks win a 15-4 blowout. Cincinnati facing the Guardians. And T.J. Friedel has had an excellent season that continued on Tuesday night. 2-1 is yanked down the right field line. Did he get it? Yes, he did. A line drive home run into right field. And T.J. Friedel has homered in four straight games. That is his 18th home run of the year. It stretches the Reds' lead to 9-7. That from 700 WLW, the Reds win that game 11-7. The Reds will face Cleveland today in what will be Terry Francona's final home game as manager of the Guardians. The Marlins were rained out in New York and play a doubleheader today. So at the start of this Wednesday, the National League wildcard remains bunched. The Diamondbacks are currently the 5C, one game ahead of the Cubs, who are just a half game ahead of the Marlins, one and a half games ahead of the Cincinnati Reds. Stancic, what else you got? Well, Buster, as you know, I produced the low post with Zach Lowe. Check out yesterday's episode with Lakers guard Austin Reeves. A lot of good stuff in there. He talked about playing on Team USA. Talked about how he earned LeBron James's trust. Uh, mentioned how he's the best golfer among NBA players. That means he thinks he's better than Steph Curry. Uh, so some great stuff there. Check out the low post with Austin Reeves of the Lakers. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus... It treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive for the ones who get it done granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions plus their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer call click granger.com or just stop by Jumping into the numbers. This is Hembo Knows on Baseball Tonight. All right, Hembo is Paul Embicati. He's a researcher at ESPN. He's the right-hand man for Greeny. How are you doing, Hembo? No one has a better life than I do. This is one of the most exciting weeks of baseball I can ever recall. If we needed any sort of proof that the new format works, that it was going to generate excitement the last week or two of the season, that it was going to generate action at the trade deadline, this year is proof positive of that. I am really enjoying myself watching these teams uh, for the division races, for the wild card races, the f- sort of final stretch of the season here. This is awfully good for the sport to sort of sprint through the tape at the end. 
So real quick, before we get to your topics, let's pick the American League wild card field. Uh, I think Blue Jays are in because they're the only team that <laughs> like it's guaranteed that every day for the rest of the regular season, one of the teams that they're involved in this race is going to lose a game because we got the Astros and the Mariners later today. And then we got the Mariners playing the Rangers. So those teams are going to lose at least one game a day. The Blue Jays get in. Would you agree? Yes, I agree with that 100 percent. And I got the Rangers and I got the Astros. Who you got? I also – I'm not going to bet against Houston at this juncture. They've not played well lately. I've been really unimpressed with the fact that they've just not been able to generate runs the way that we've expected for so long. But I think the Dusty Baker effect, I think the muscle memory from so many big games over the years is going to make a huge difference this weekend. That's my best guess. But the fact that we even have to guess, I think, again, it's proof positive that this format, this exciting format works awfully well. Yeah. And I, as I, and the crazy thing is if the Astros get in as a six seed, if they got in as the five seed, if they were to win the division, uh, to me, uh, they would be the team to beat in the American League playoffs because the American League teams are so beaten up. Uh, but anyway, let's get to today's topics. We're talking at the top of the show about Brooks Robinson. What do you got on him? Royalty, Buster. Baseball royalty. There is, there is no list of the most revered stars in sports, any sport on which Brooks Robinson is not at or near the top. Of course, it all starts with his defense. It is my belief that that Brooks Robinson is the greatest infielder that ever lived, full stop. He played more games at third base than any player played at any position in the history of Major League Baseball. He recorded more assists, more putouts, and turned more double plays at that position than anybody in history. And his record uh, for a position player of 16 gold gloves, I think, will very likely stand until the end of time. The second thing that I want to say about Brooks Robinson is, I mean, he effectively won a World Series by himself. I mean, that 1970 series, the one against Cincinnati in which he won MVP, is the stuff of legend. That dazzling display of defense that he showed, of which um, Johnny Bench once said, I would hit lefty to avoid hitting the ball to Brooks Robinson. Um, I think that play he made uh, in game one uh, down the line against Lee May is the second greatest play ever made in the World Series behind only Willie Mays' catch in Game 1 of the 1954 World Series. That is one of the most iconic shots in the history of baseball. Nobody did it better. And that postseason, he was as good as any player that has ever lived. And lastly, Brooks Robinson, the person, Buster, is is beyond reproach. Uh, I just want to read for you a few quotes that I think best summarize Brooks Robinson from people that did know him. Our buddy Tim Kirkshen said, he's the single nicest man he has ever met in a major league uniform. Oriole historian Ted Patterson said, other stars had fans, Robbie made friends. And of course, legendarily, Gordon Beard said of Brooks Robinson in New York, they named a candy bar after Reggie Jackson. Here in Baltimore, we name our children after Brooks Robinson. <laughs> you know, you set up his personality well. He was an incredibly humble person. But even in that vein, you're talking about the 1970 World Series. I was reading quotes uh, from him last night. I was watching highlights of, of his plays last night. He talked about how he felt like that 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 was the apex of his career defensively, those games, because not only, you know, do you have to be a great fielder, but you have to have the opportunities. And he's making plays to his right. He's making plays to his left. He has a diving catch where you can see him. He holds up the ball after he catches it. And I was thinking yesterday about Boog Powell, who's such a nice man. I got to know him in the two years I covered the Orioles uh, better than Brooks. And, and I'm, I, you know, I just watching him take throws. It didn't matter the angle that Brooks was throwing from on some of these highlights. It was right there, the same throw every time, the middle of his chest. And he wasn't someone who had a great arm. Like Nolan Arenado has an unbelievable arm. 
Brooks Robinson got rid of the ball so quickly. And on top of that, and I, you know, if, if uh, Boog was here, I'd say, yeah, like that play on Lee May, like Boog mm. Powell didn't, he was not someone who stretched to make catches, right? He didn't get any help from Boog on at first base on those plays. And he made out after out. He was phenomenal. Watching him play to this day is surreal. Um, he always complained about his lack of arm strength and it didn't matter. He had the best footwork of any infielder ever. He, he, was, um, he was a great uh, high school basketball player, he got a scholarship to play basketball at the University of Arkansas. And you can just see the, the, the way that he um, meandered around the field, the way that he was always in such perfect position to throw, it didn't really matter. Like he turned playing third base into an art form. Like third, third base is such a unique position based upon the angles, uh, based upon, of course, the throws. And watching Brooks Robinson play it is like watching an artist. Like there are so few people that have ever done anything as well as he did. It holds up today, 50 years later, watching him play that position. If you dropped 1970 version of Brooks Robinson onto a field in 2023, he would still be the greatest third baseman there ever was. All right. It's a busy day on the pod today, but I did want to take time to talk about Terry Francona, who has his last game uh, as the manager of the Guardians in a home game. Uh, he is, from what I understand, from talking to Chris Antonetti and other people in that organization, he has basically threatened them with uh, if they present anything that's a surprise today because he doesn't want a lot of attention on himself. Sorry, you're a future Hall of Fame manager. We're going to talk about you. Hembo's going to talk about you. That's right. Uh, there's no such thing as a perfect manager, Buster, but but Terry Francona was pretty close. Um, I don't get to travel to games nearly as often as you do, but I did get to cover the uh, Rays Guardian series last year in Cleveland. So I spent some time with with Tito and the and the broadcast crew in his in his office, and in just spending a little bit of time with him, the way that so many of us have over the years, it imme- I immediately kind of understood why he was almost larger than life, like had made himself sort of a a living legend in baseball. Like everything he said was meaningful and everything he said mattered so much. And he just captured a room. And so it's no surprise that his teams enjoyed such enormous success in large part because of the culture that he created. So I, like many people, was fairly surprised when the Red Sox hired him in 2004. I, of course, as you know, uh, am a Phillies fan and Phillies weren't very good when Terry Francona managed that team. But to the day that I die, I will steadfastly believe that the 2004 Red Sox would never have overcome that three to nothing deficit against the Yankees had almost anyone else managed that team. That was an historic comeback. And you can't do that if you don't have belief and you don't have culture. And Terry Francona provided both of those things and then some. During the eight years he managed Boston, he had the second best record in baseball. In the 11 years he managed Cleveland, they had the third best record in baseball. So for all, for all things that are holy, if I'm living in Cleveland today and I have the evening free, pack that stadium tonight. Do it for Tito. That has been a fan base that has not always done that. But tonight, give for, for just one night, one night, appreciate this man for what you've had for the last 11 years. He is one of the greatest to ever do it. Show your appreciation tonight. If I were in Cleveland tonight, that is exactly where I would be. I think a lot of current managers, because as you know, the sport is trended toward players, managers, and I think Tito absolutely would fit that description, but he also has the ability to hold players' feet to the fire and to be direct and tell them when he thinks they're out of line. I think a lot of the current managers, coaches uh, in professional sports have lost that uh, ability to do that. All right, before you go, tell me what you're seeing in the Atlanta Braves pitching staff, because I think what happened over the weekend, red flags all over the place. 
I would be absolutely mortified if I were a fan of the Atlanta Braves right now, the clear and obvious runaway favorite to win the World Series, according to the betting market, at least. In order for them to do that, they're going to need to win 11 postseason games. They're going to need to get 297 outs. Buster, right now, they do not have the requisite pitching to pull that off. We know that Charlie Morton's on the IL with a finger. Who knows if we'll even see him again this season? He's one of the best postseason pitchers of his generation. I don't think we should expect to. Max Fried's on the aisle with a blister. Who knows what version of Max Fried we'll get if and when he comes back. We trust Spencer Schrider, we think, but it's a 3-8-1 ERA this year. We know he's prone to blow up games, as we saw in the postseason last year. He, he, he gives up home runs. Kyle Wright isn't Kyle Wright right now. And Bryce Elder doesn't miss nearly enough bats. No. Buster, it's also a bullpen that has a 4-2-5 ERA since the All-Star break and a bullpen that has a 5-4-9 ERA in the month of September. Granted, this is a team that is on cruise control, but those are still pretty loud numbers. So like, if, if you out, so I guess what the fan base is going to rely upon is for them to out-homer and thus outscore everyone in the playoffs. Maybe, but you know my school of thought with this stuff. How many ways can you win? What, ha- what happens when plan A fails? Do you have a good plan B? What happens when plan B fails? Do you have a good plan C? It is not obvious to me that the Atlanta Braves, in what will be a more suppressed run-scoring environment, as it generally is in the playoffs, are in a bit of trouble here. They're going to win some games six to four. In games three to two against the best pitching staffs and against the best lineups in baseball, Buster, I'm not so sure. Yeah, and I can't remember an example of a team that hit its way to the World Series, that just bashed everybody in submission through the postseason. You've had good offensive teams, but most of the time it's teams like the Astros last year where they have their pitching together and they can shut down opposing teams. That's, uh, as you know, as a Phillies fan, that's what the Astros did last year. All right, Hembo, great to talk with you as always. Thank you. Stephen A. Smith is the host of First Take, but long before he did any of that, I met him when he was a columnist in Philadelphia. He's an old friend. Stephen A., how you doing? What's going on, Buster? How are you, my man? How's everything? I'm doing great. I got to say, after you threw out your first pitch last week, I just was dying to hear the backstories. Uh, before you went out to throw the pitch, after you went out to throw the pitch, because I, you know, the most famous first pitch ever thrown, of course, was George W. Bush, the president during the 2001 World Series. And I love the story how Derek Jeter told him before he walked out to the mound, if you bounce it, they're going to boo you. And of course, he threw a perfect first pitch. (laughs) And I've heard so many other stories connected to that moment. I got to hear your stories. Well, first of all, let me start off by saying I apologize to people like you and others who expected more from me. I choked, man. That's really what this comes down to, okay? So here's the deal. I get to Yankee Stadium. I haven't thrown a pitch since junior high school. I haven't (laughs) thrown a pitch since junior high school. So I go to Yankee. I'm like, people talk about practice. I'm like, please, I don't need a practice. I'm fine. I'm fine, right? So I go to Yankee Stadium, and Obviously, I'm a diehard Yankee fan. I grew up born in the Bronx, but raised in Queens, Hollis, Queens, since I was one years old. I've been a diehard Yankee fan all my life. My daddy wouldn't even allow us to watch the Mets until we turned eight, until I turned 18 years of age, which was 1986, to show you how diehard Yankee fans we were. And it was a big moment, so I get to Yankee Stadium. And I'm hanging out at Randy Levine's suite, president of the Yankees, and the food is good, and I'm chugging on a couple of hot dogs, some sauerkraut, stuff like that. I'm having a good time. And the next thing I know, they said, all right, get some practice in. I said, cool. So I go down to the field. And when I go down to the field, Buster Olney, I'm practicing in front of the Yankees dugout. Yankee personnel come out there. They couldn't have been nicer. They couldn't have been more hospitable and accommodating. And the guy 
brings me a, a couple of baseballs, and he walks 60 feet, six inches. And before you know it, Buster, I'm throwing strikes left and right, throwing strikes. Even when I'm not throwing a ball, it's within the vicinity. You know what I'm saying? I'm right there. Okay. And then they said, it's time. It's time to go out to the hill. And I go out there. First thing, first thing, that minute, I'm wearing sneakers. I don't have on cleats. And I'm wearing my Christian Louboutin sneakers, my white Christian Louboutin sneakers, with the red bottoms, all right, all right, Buster? And I step foot on the dirt, and it's slippery. That's the first thing I noticed. I said, oh, damn. Okay, don't worry about it. And then I walk, and I know that the mound is only 10 inches off the surface, but it felt like 30. And I'm walking up, and I'm like, what the hell? And then I turn around, and I look at home plate. And I said, oh, my God, what have I done? That plate looked like a mile away. And I said, Jesus, what have I done? That's a, that's a long throw right there. That's a long throw. And then I remembered, like I said, almost slipping on the dirt. And I said, okay, I'm about to bust my ass on national television. This cannot happen. This cannot happen. I said, so you got to keep your balance. You can't fall. And then I said, okay, you're going to try to throw it a little hard. But you know what? Maybe if you could just try a damn curveball or something, maybe it won't look as bad. Just try. Get it to home plate. And you saw what you saw. What I would qualify to be a disastrous result. That is a story, Buster Oni. That's just all right. But did team. you hear from any of the players? Did you? A, I don't know if you if the play, you were around the players before before you threw the first pitch. If you got any feedback from them, and then yes. after you made the pitch, I'm curious about the feedback you got from them. Well, first of all, I spoke to Derek Jeter before I threw the pitch because I was wearing his jersey because that's my all time favorite Yankee, El Capitan. That's what I call him. Okay, and he was like, "Don't f this up, don't f this up, man." And then right before I went on the mound. Aaron Judge walked up to me, and he said the same thing. He said, don't mess this up. I'm telling you that right now. Don't mess up. I said, Derek Jeter just told me the same thing. He ain't lying to you. Don't mess this up, Stephen A. Don't do it. And I said, Lord. And then that's the first time I ever stood in front of Aaron Judge. I couldn't believe how big he was. Yep. And, 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 and that made it worse because I'm imagining somebody like him at the plate. And I'm like, good Lord have mercy. So let me try to throw this. And then and then the minute it hit the dirt before it hit home plate, all I could say to myself was, you know what? I could sit up there and use the excuse this was a knuckleball. I was throwing it in the dirt. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was swinging that. Maybe that's what happened. I was using that as an analogy. It just, it was just a bad, it, it was a wonderful, wonderful night right up until the moment I threw the pitch. Tell me about the text messages afterward. Whether it's basketball guys, baseball guys, whatever. Well, well, first thing, I was crucified. I was crucified. I, I was called. I was uh, Shannon Sharp. Shannon Sharp was like that is, is that is disgraceful. Ryan Clark was like, you, you ain't you don't ever call yourself an athlete again. Jeter was like, okay, here's how we're gonna cover you. We're gonna say it was cricket. You thought we were playing cricket, so, like, laughing at me and stuff like that, right? Harold Reynolds called me. With his boys in MLB studios, cracking up laughing. They were like, that was bad. That was bad. Uh, Steve Harvey trolled me on uh, with a text. And then the next day he came on, he called in the first take. Shaq did, just dogged me. I mean, the list goes on and on. It was Paul George for the Clippers text me. He was like, 
my brother, you got to do better than that. That come on, bro. It, I, I mean, it was universally. I was universally ridiculed, but I could take it because I deserved it, man. I know I can do better. I know I was doing better warming up. Damn it, I know I could do better. Period. I just did it. It was a complete choke job. I, I disappointed you. I didn't even want to think about what Tim Kirkchin had to say to me. I didn't see anything from him. He just spared me. But it was it was it was a bad night, man. It was a bad experience, no question about it. I, I let everybody down because it was a complete choke job. Complete choke yeah. job on my part. Well, when I heard the radio clip when you were on with Carlin in the afternoon, you were like, "You got to do," and I, I'm paraphrasing, "Got to do better than you know Buster or Tim for those you know great baseball minds." But I can't imagine those guys throwing. First pitch, I was like, wait a second, I'm four for four on first pitches. And Tim, when I had him on the podcast the other day, he said the same thing. I got to believe there's going to be an opportunity for you next summer when the Yankees uh, play in 2024 to redeem yourself. Will you take that opportunity? I, I will not back down from that opportunity. I can't. I can't. I mean, I got to risk embarrassing myself again. I cannot back down if offered the chance to redeem myself. I owe it to Derek Jeter. I owe it to Tom Brady. I owe it to you. I owe it to Tim Kirkchen. I owe it to Harold Reynolds. I owe it to a whole bunch of people to redeem myself from that one, man. But you know something? First take is a hot seat. And I put people in a hot seat all the time. It's only right that I embrace it myself. When I'm in it, I'm in it. I can't sit up there and complain to athletes all the time and coaches and stuff like that. Running from the hot seat if I do it myself. So I deserve it. I got to eat it. That's why when Buster Olney called me to come on, I said, I got to do it. Got to do it. Before you go, give us your World Series pick. I'm going to go with, believe it or not, I'm going to try something different here. I'm going to go with the Braves versus the Orioles. Okay. And who comes out of that? Braves win the World Series. Okay. So, they, yeah, they, they overcome potentially some of their pitching issues, but you believe in that really deep lineup, Ronald Acuna Jr. at the top. That's right. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I'm going to roll with that. Haven't watched much Orioles baseball this season, but I love this story. And I just think that it's one of those Cinderella rides that ends in the World Series, not before it. Stephen A., thanks for joining us. And if you get another opportunity to throw a first pitch, I got to come to Yankee Stadium and be a coach, okay? Tim Kirchin will be there to be a coach. We will be there to support you. And remember, I didn't go on the mound until the pitch. Next time, I got to practice from the mound. <laughs> practice, right, buddy. without a doubt, Stephen A. <laughs> the practice, man. We're talking about practice. The NFL schedule drops this week. And you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code BASEBALL. That's code BASEBALL. Download the app or visit vividseats.com today. That's vividseats.com. Dot com today, code baseball. Vivid Seats, experience it live. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Alden Gonzalez covers baseball for ESPN, and that means next week, Alden, uh, going, going, covering one of the wild card series, being part of that. And I, we had a Zoom meeting yesterday, and, and uh, it was what was the word they used on all of all of uh, all of the panels they showed us on our Zoom call? I think was speculative. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> we don't really know where we're going to go, right? I don't, Buster, I don't think we're going to know until basically the last two days. I've been trying to map this out in my head about what the scenarios are, where I would be for the playoffs. These wildcard races have been so insane that there's no way to predict it. Any Anytime you think you have it figured out, things change completely, and it's the narrative is flipped on its head. So the one sure thing, or two sure things, I know I'm going to be with the Sunday night group, and it looks like I'm going to get Nash, one of the National League series, and you're going to be with uh, Michael Kay and Alex Rodriguez? That's right. I believe we're going to be in Minneapolis for whoever it is that the Twins play. And as a perfect example, it looked like the Astros were going to nail down that third wildcard spot. And then last night, George Kirby pitches a gem. The Mariners win. Now they're a half game out. They control their own destiny. And this is just the way it's been. And I'm going to come back a little bit later to ask you what you think is going to happen with those American League West teams. I, I, you know, and you can proceed at your own peril when I pose the question to you. But before <laughs> that, I want to talk about some teams that are not going to make the playoffs. Uh, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, a total disaster at the end of this regular season. And Mike Trout the other day spoke of the Porters. You were there. Uh, of course, we had the story uh, recently from Bob Nightingale of USA Today that the Angels are going to be open to the idea of possibly trading him. Trout addressed his future with the Angels. I go through this every year, so it's like, <laughs> you know, I think there's private conversations I have with with Artie and and John, and you know, it's uh, like I said, I'm doing the same thing I did last last what 13 years, just going to the off season, clearing my mind, getting ready for spring, and you know, wearing an Angels uniform in spring, so. And subsequently, Trout got very emotional talking about his injury this season. Give a listen. Frustration level, knowing that this injury is keeping you out the rest of the way. Yeah, it's frustrating. It's uh, it's better now, obviously, but um, I want to get back. Uh, it's tough, so it's been hard on me. So, yeah. Are these emotions because of the frustrations of this year, or is it compounding because of the injuries? I just want to be out there. Yeah, the injuries. Uh, that sucks. I mean, like I said, you know, I, all the hard work and stuff, and just freak stuff happens. So, but I'm trying to stay positive. So. so, tell me what your impressions were as you heard him, because 
what I, you know, and I, and I heard a lot of people breaking this down. My read on it was this is someone who just loves to play baseball and he just kind of, it hurts him not to be able to do that. What was your read on it? Similar to that, Buster, uh, I've covered Mike Trout since his first full season in 2012. I've never seen him get emotional like that. And I think very simply, he loves to play and not being able to play hurts. I think one of the things that he mentioned uh, during that media session was how much of a goal it was for him going into this year to just remain healthy, to not have these soft tissue issues that he's had in the past, to not have those back issues. He hired a ton of people to work on his body going into this year. And when he got hurt on July 3rd, his body felt great. His body was holding up as well as it has in a long time. He takes a swing. He suffers a handmade injury. It's sort of a freak injury. And he can't come back from it. And it's another lost season. And it's also just, I mean, you got to think about the trajectory of Mike Trout. Through the first eight, seven, eight years of his career, he was on a path to being quite possibly the greatest player in baseball history. Now, over these last four years, you have the pandemic shortened season. And then you have back-to-back-to-back years where he just hasn't played full seasons. He's basically played half of the Angels games. That's gone now. And I think the realization of that is part of it. Not to say that Mike Trout is done. I think he's got plenty of great years left. But that part is gone. And I think while he might be frustrated with the direction of the Angels right now, and I'm sure he is, uh, I think he also feels partly you know, guilty because he couldn't be out there. Again, uh, not his fault, but... You know, he had to just watch while this Angels team that didn't trade Shohei Otani, that tried to buy the trade deadline, while they completely sank in August and were irrelevant once again. Yeah, and he's apologized to Piers during the course of the year. Like, he sincerely feels bad about not being available for the team. Uh, You know, the whole question about whether or not he potentially get traded. The feedback I keep on getting from folks with other teams is, look, he makes way too much money for them to to be able to to flip him to another team without eating a whole lot of money. To me, the comp would be the uh, the trade of Nolan Arenado from the Rockies to the Cardinals, where basically you'd have to have a situation where the Angels would not only give him away for very little in return, but also eat a ton of money. I don't see Artie Moreno doing that in the end. What about you? I don't see it either. I think there are a lot of things that have to happen in order for a trade of Mike Trout to work out, if you really think about it. Look, if you listen to that interview, uh, he was asked multiple times about staying with the Angels, uh, about whether or not he would ask for a trade when he meets with the owner, Artie Moreno, and the president, John Carpino, at the end of the season. He didn't definitively say he would or he wouldn't. He kind of left the door. I know he had that quote where he said he expects to be an angel in spring training, but he sort of left the door slightly open. And my understanding for that is, look, there's a very real possibility. Who knows what happens here? But that the, the season ends, he meets with ownership and they tell him, look, we're going to rebuild. Now, look, that would run counter to everything Artie Moreno has done since he's been the owner. But if that scenario plays out and, and they tell Mike Trout, we're not going to be able to sign Shohei Otani. We're going to take a couple steps back and rebuild. I could see a scenario where Mike Trout would be like, all right, then get me out of here. Let's figure out a trade. Anything outside of that, though, Buster, that's a lot of money left. That's a lot of injuries he's had over these last few years. And so think about this from the Angels' perspective. You're going to trade the greatest player in your franchise's history, your franchise player at 32 years old, just to save some money? Because that's basically what it's going to be at this point. I don't see them doing that. And even if they were, Mike Trout has, Mike Trout can block any trade through a full no trade clause, through 10 and 5 rights. 
it's got to be a team that he wants to play for as well. And those forces combining for something to work out that makes sense for both parties. I don't know about that. And look, I'll talk to some people around Mike Trout and they'll acknowledge that he's really frustrated with the direction of the organization. But there are also a lot of people who know him well who will tell me, Mike Trout's a loyal guy. He likes it there. He wants to win with the Angels. He wants to work it out with the Angels. Is he at a point where he doesn't feel like that's possible? I don't know. I still think it's really unlikely that he gets traded. Yeah, and I I just haven't gotten to know him through the years. I think he's uh, also feels the responsibility of what he has not been able to contribute to the team. The fact that he's been injured so much in recent years, I don't feel like he's going to personally feel like he can have the leverage to complain out loud. You know what I mean? Like Exactly. Wham, I'm not happy here. The Angels aren't winning. He's not going to do that in a situation where he hasn't been playing. Like he's going to f- have felt that responsibility. So we'll see where that goes. The Angels, I think if you were to rank the teams by levels of dysfunction, the Angels definitely be one. The San Diego Padres would have to be in the top five. It's been an ugly season for them after a, you know, coming into spring training with a lot of expectations after reaching the NLCS last year. And the other day, Kevin A.C. of the San Diego Union Tribune reported that the Padres are planning a massive reduction in payroll this offseason. Look, I I mean, we haven't heard that from Peter Seidler, their owner. We haven't heard it from A.J. Preller, their general manager, head of baseball ops, uh, at least for now. We'll see uh, if there's a change in that job. I don't think this has gotten enough attention, Alvin, because of the implications of that. Uh, If, in fact, the Padres cut their payroll that much, my read on it is that means – They almost certainly have to trade Juan Soto this winter. He's a free agent after next season. There's no chance that they're going to be involved in the bidding to sign Shohei Otani if they're going to take their payroll down that much. And I think they'd have a really hard time making moves around the core players that they're keeping, apparently. Manny Machado, Joe Musgrove, Hugh Darvish, Fernando Tatis Jr., Xander Bogarts. It would, to reduce their payroll by that much that quickly, would just crush their payroll flexibility. What's your read on the Padres situation? Well, Buster, what's the one thing that you heard about the Padres from other people, from people um, in the league? Uh, as this season, these last two seasons played out, they're losing a lot of money, right? And as much as I loved what the Padres did, and I still do, uh, believing in that market, and as great as the fans responded, um, look, I, I don't, their books aren't open. I don't know exactly what their finances look like, but that's been the word from everybody that you talk to outside of the Padres is that, you know, they're taking on some pretty big losses in fielding this team. If it ends up being the case that they have to get under $200 million, and I do not know that for sure, but if they need to cut down payroll by a significant portion, there's one path to doing that and really one path only, and that's trading Juan Soto. And, you know, he, he was their best hitter this year. Okay, he's probably a guy that they'd like to build around, but you're not training Manny Machado. You're not training Fernando Tatis Jr. or Yu Darvish or Joe Musgrove or any of these guys who signed long-term deals. And you're absolutely right. It's going to be really hard to continue to contend. And that was the danger all along of signing all these guys to really long deals, signing Manny Machado to 10 extra years when he was going into his free agent year, signing a really long contract with Xander Bogarts that a lot of people in the, in the industry were shocked by, frankly. Yep. Um, and when you do that, all of a sudden, you need production from these guys who are all in their 30s. You need them to be superstar performers because it's going to be really difficult for you to make moves on the margins. AJ Preller, one thing he is really good at is he's really good at revitalizing a farm system and getting prospects to come back up and you know at least be on a path to to contribute in the major leagues. 
their prospects are still their best prospects are still at least a couple of years away. So you're not getting that help next season. And if you got to trade Juan Soto, maybe you could get some young players back. But that also means you're not bringing Michael Walker back, probably, if you're trying to get under $200 million. And you got to make other cost-saving moves, and it's going to be tough. My understanding with uh, Peter Seidler was that he was going to try again next year. And he was going to keep trying to spend because he wants. To, he feels like there's a window here with this team where he's got to tap into that to try to win. But if they're in violation of MLB's debt service rule... Um, and he has to get under a certain point, that's going to make for a really fascinating offseason because there's not a lot of flexibility on that roster right now. You wrote a great story last Friday about the Dodgers and how they're going to try to navigate uh, their way through this postseason despite the fact that their uh, core of starting pitchers have absolutely been decimated uh, for various reasons. You know, Injuries to Dustin May, Tony Gonsolin, Walker Bueller didn't come back. Julio Arias is not available because he's being investigated under the domestic violence policy. So as we sit here today, they basically have Clayton Kershaw and Bobby Miller and Lance Lynn and then a whole bunch of relievers. How are they going to make this work? With a whole bunch of relievers <laughs> and, a, and a bunch of openers and there's going to be a bunch of bridge starters. You're going to see guys like Ryan Yarborough and Emmett Sheehan and Ryan Pepio take down middle innings, three to four innings at a time. Uh, what One good thing about them is their bullpen has been really good uh, since basically for the last couple of months. I think they've had the best bullpen ERA in baseball. So that's a positive going into October. But. I don't know that we're going to see a single game this postseason as they keep advancing where a starting pitcher is facing an opposing lineup a third time through the order. Wow. Uh, because, I mean, Dave Roberts' message, particularly the guys like Clayton Kershaw and Lance Lynn, guys who are trained to pitch deep in the games, who sort of save their best stuff for last or setting up hitters for when they face them again, he's told them, go as hard as you can for as long as you can, meaning – Approach starts like a relief pitcher. Leave your best stuff out there inning to inning, and we'll pick up the rest afterwards. And look, that's in theory, that's great. But if the but the Dodgers want to win a championship, and if you're gonna win a championship, that's an entire month of doing it this way. It's hard. I've seen it be hard on them when they try to do it within one series, when they try to get flexible with Julio Rios, or where they try to, you know, with Dustin May and Tony Gonsolin in 2020. It's not easy. Sustaining that for a full postseason, in some ways, Buster, it's unprecedented. Uh, I think at some point, they're going to need starters to give them some real length. I don't know if that's Bobby Miller. I don't know if that's Lance Lynn. Clayton Kershaw looked really good last Saturday. Five shutout innings, but he hasn't pitched more than five sh- more than five innings since he got back. So that's going to be really, really interesting to see how they juggle that. It's It's going to be a high wire act. So, you know, Dave Roberts' personality the other day when we were talking to him about this before the Sunday night game, he was very positive and, and he was pumped up and like, we're going to find a way. But then I thought about it afterward. I'm like, what choice does he have None. None. <laughs> other than to be that? I mean, it's like this is what the ammunition that he's available to him and they're going to try to try to make it work within uh, with what they have. All right. Before you go, give me a quick thought on the uh, American League West and how it's going to play out the rest of the way. I, I was telling Hembo before, I've got the Rangers winning the division. I've got the Astros being the second wild card, uh, the last wild card, and the Mariners being on the outs. What about you? That was my thought going in. And the big reason for that was because of the Mariners' schedule. Having to play Rangers, Astros, Rangers again, having no let up, I think that was going to make the difference. But then you look at the Astros, who can't beat the A's, and who can't beat the Royals, and then it's just a reminder to me that I have no idea what I'm talking about. 
<laughs> exactly. That's the way we all should feel right now. And, and just a reminder, I picked the Padres to win the World Series before the year started. So, Alden, thanks for doing this. Thank you, Buster. Appreciate it. Tim Kuhn writes for ESPN and recently his story about the failed negotiations between the A's and the city of Oakland really drew a lot of attention. Tim, how are you doing this morning? I'm good, Buster. How are you? I'm uh, doing well, getting fired up. You're, you're going to Seattle? You told me just before we got I started. I am. I'm going to go watch the last five games of the season up there and see how that uh, crazy American League West shakes out. Do you want to give a prediction or are you like scared of that, which I would not blame you for that? <laughs> uh you know i'm i'm gonna go with uh i'm gonna go with the mariners getting that uh really that last wild card spot yeah they're a half you game think out the astros think are gonna, gonna be sitting it. on the couch on monday i, I kind of do yeah i do i think they've just squandered too many chances to take control and now it's uh it may not be up to them in the last week man the, the off season is gonna be full of regret for whichever the whichever of those teams doesn't make the playoffs Yes. Uh, there's no, and who knows, maybe the Rangers collapse down the stretch, the way this, uh, this West has been going. So tell, tell me your big takeaway from the piece that you did on the negotiations between the A's and the city of Oakland. Well, I think the big takeaway Buster is, is that how few solid answers the A's were able to give, uh, about what, what's next, you know, um, there were, there was, obviously many big takeaways one of which was that this the breakdown in Oakland happened without anything breaking down it just became it just they just got a call that the A's were were headed to Vegas at a time when Oakland mayor Sheng Tao thought they were closer than ever to a deal to finalize the Howard terminal site in Oakland um so that that's one takeaway and the other takeaway is that the A's uh, they they kind of went on a mini press tour for for a few days where John Fisher was made available to to three reporters and luckily I was one of them um, and, and there's just uh, there's so many holes in this I just don't know they don't know where they're going to play after next year when the Coliseum lease runs out they don't know what the stadium's going to look like in Las Vegas they don't know whether a retractable roof is possible on nine acres all these things that that. I've been told needed to be answered in a relocation application weren't and still haven't. And so the lingering question I have is how do the owners vote in November, which is what is the prevailing thought right now, without the information that seems vital to this relocation? I talked to an owner recently and he said that there is so much work to be done on, uh, you know, on that relocation application that they're doing. Um, that he he asked the same question you did. Like, I, I think there's a presumption that eventually it works out where the, the franchise moves to Las Vegas, but it still feels like to some of the people involved that it, they may be a million miles away. Um, so within uh, along those lines, as we move forward, um, do you think that um, that there could be any chance of rekindling between Oakland and the franchise? It is, you know, I got the feeling, Buster, when talking to to John Fisher and, and Dave Cavill, the president of the A's, that part of their little uh, PR tour here, which, you know, ha hasn't gone particularly well, uh, no. was to kind of thaw relations with Oakland. Because I think that they, 
they see that they're going to need Oakland, that they're going to need the Coliseum for a minimum three years after the lease expires next year. Um, and, and that they're, but the city of Oakland, I think, is kind of playing their cards the right way. They see that they now, in a strange way, have some leverage to de- decide what comes next for that city if it's not the A's, because there is, you know, there is talk of expansion. They, the mayor wants the, the the name to stay in Oakland. There are other concessions that I think they're going to ask for in order to keep the have the A's stay there for for an extra three years. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, right now, you know, since April, there has been no conversation between, between the two sides. And, and I, I think that the, the vibe I get is that the A's are going to have to be the ones who initiate that if there is going to be further negotiations. So with the details that you reported, what was most shocking to me was how close they seemed to be financially when the whole thing fell apart. Can you uh, just describe that? Yeah, I mean, they had been about $100 million apart on a $12 billion project. And this project from the beginning had question marks all over it because it was so big and unwieldy and where it was and on the waterfront with so much infrastructure that had to be done because there's really nothing there now except for piles of metal and railroad tracks that go nowhere. And I think that that what what the Oakland people saw the night that Dave Cavill called Mayor Tao and said that there was going to that they were had a binding deal in Vegas that day that the mayor and her staff had been at a some political thing with the opening of a local business and they had talked about this and they had said the mayor said I think we you know I think we might be able to pull this off you know against all odds and and in a move that could be absolutely career defining for a local politician um, they had. They were 100 million apart. They had guarantees for another 65 million dollars to for federal grants. So they were down to the actual number was 36 million was what they were apart, which is just a, a pittance for something that's 12 billion dollars. Crazy. So that could not have been. That could not have been the, the. That's what I say. There's no precipitating event that caused any breakdown in talks or caused the A's to walk away. It just feels like. They, you know, as I asked the mayor's chief of staff, did John Fisher get cold feet? And she said, no, I think he got an accountant. And I think that that's that's probably a little bit closer to the truth when we look at this. Yeah. When I read your piece and and I love that quote about the accountant in it, I I just makes me shake my head because you just like the chaos that is ensuing for Major League Baseball to deal with a situation. You wonder why someone within the sport didn't just step up and figure out a way to 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 cover that gap even after the fact even after they like they go to Vegas and the story comes out they still had and still have an opportunity if they want to to go back and try to reprise that yes yes i mean they do that site's not going anywhere nobody's jumping up to to bid on on developing it it right now and and yeah you're right i mean it it and and you know, this gets me to Tim, what it's Rob Tim money for a it, freaking eleven billion dollar industry. Thirty five million dollars is tip money, as the players yeah, would say. That's a that's a that's a bad two year contract for a starting pitcher that you know <laughs> blows his arm out in April of his first year of his contract. Everyone just writes it off. Uh, but yeah, I think that that it, it's amazing because they didn't 
they didn't try to bridge that gap. They they just walked away. And, you know, in the in the ensuing days, you know, Rob Manfred last week was quoted in the San Francisco Chronicle as saying, well, if they were only a hundred million dollars apart, why didn't the mayor put that hundred million dollars on the table? Well, this is Oakland. This is not, I mean, they're not in a great position financially. They were doing what they could for the A's, what they would do for any other developer, which is provide the infrastructure. Um, but but that gets to your point about this being a pittance, is that if Rob Manfred could say, well, why didn't you just throw $100 million on the table? Well, she could f- fire back and say, why didn't Major League Baseball fire $36 million on the table? Right, you know, it's a it Mitch just... Hanniger contract. The way you described <laughs> that was perfect, Right. Exactly. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I mean, the, the, it gets also to the fact that the A's and, and Major League Baseball are really losing the PR battle here. They're l- losing it with the fans. And I think there's some frustration brewing in this. I think that they, I don't think they like that. And I think that Manfred's frustration shows that, you know, I mean, if this was a, if this was, if this PR battle was a game, you know, that, that there'd be a position player pitching for the A's right now, because they are, they they are just so completely getting run in circles by the 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 mostly the two women in Oakland, the mayor and her chief of staff, who have had an answer for everything every step of the way. And I don't think that either John Fisher or Major League Baseball particularly likes being challenged on these things. Yeah, and how much is John Fisher worth in, in theory? Uh, well, in theory, it's over two billion dollars, right? And, and that and that's him personally, and not the family, which you might, you know, quadruple that with with the with the gap, the Fisher family. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it it as you you mentioned in passing that this isn't this is something that affects a lot of people. Like this is a massive thing. It doesn't happen very often. The last time it happened. The Expos moved to, to Washington. So it's a it's a rare occurrence and it is so it's so earth shattering. You know, John Fisher owns the Oakland A's. He can't even go to a game. You know, I mean, that's how that's how much the people that they, they can say there aren't many A's fans, which is debatable. There aren't many A's fans at games, but they don't want him. They, they, they have completely they've they've taken a side and the side is is not John Fisher's side. And I think that that is, uh, that's kind of wearing on, on this whole process. Yeah. The equivalent for someone of that value would be like him essentially buying a patio grill, (laughs) the amount of money, (laughs) right. That it would be required to get this done and to honor the fans, to honor the athletics franchise. I'm talking about, you know, the team that goes way back to Philadelphia, Kansas city and all those you know, wonderful years that they've had in Oakland. Uh, it, it really does make John Fisher and Major League Baseball look incredibly cheap and small-minded, you know, in, in my it opinion. Uh, and your story really laid that out. Uh, real quick, uh, you mentioned the possibility of expansion. If it doesn't work out and they do go to Las Vegas, do you look at Oakland as being a viable spot for expansion going forward? Because I, 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 if it is, I don't know why they just don't work this out. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, there are local buyers that want to build on the Coliseum, which is a much more viable, you know, shovel in the ground spot for right now. Um, And expansion in Oakland, I mean, it's the 10th biggest media market in the country. You know, it is it it, when when the team tries or the the, the ownership tries um, Billy Bean years, Moneyball, we all know those stories. 
the fans come out. That team has a following, and it has had a following in a very bad stadium that I might add the current ownership has done nothing to improve over the last three years and has right. really let decay. So the, 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 the attendance figures can't be something that they take into account when they look at whether this is a viable market for baseball. Um, I, I mean, it's a viable market for baseball. The question I have is whether this whole thing has created enough animosity that Major League Baseball says, you know, no, Nashville and Portland, you know, or, or you know, wherever. All right. Before you go, you're an old baseball guy. And so I, I thought this story would be one that you would appreciate. Adam Wainwright announced yesterday, Cardinals announced yesterday, he's not going to pitch again. Uh, but our old friend Derek Gould uh, writes that uh, he is there is a possibility, it sounds like, that he may take a plate appearance uh, before the end of the regular season if there's a meaningless situation. They're playing the Reds. And, uh, you know, if that's the wild cards decided, I love these stories at the end of the regular seasons. And we've seen them throughout history. You know, Denny McClain uh, throwing a meatball to Mickey Mantle uh, for a milestone home run. When I covered the Orioles, Mike Messina uh, was pitching in the last game that Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker played in old Tiger Stadium. And he was letting them know, like, I'm going to throw you fastballs. And then one of my favorite ones, uh, Jake Peavy was pitching for the Padres against Todd Helton and the Rockies. Helton needed a, a home run for a milestone. And Jake, I thought watching the game live, absolutely grooved a pitch. And I texted him afterward and I said, did you just kind of throw him a meatball? And he just sent back a smiley face. I, I think it's like a sign of ultimate respect. Uh, any stories jump to mind for you? And what do you think about this thing with Wainwright? Because I would assume whoever's on the mound is going to give him a meatball. Yes. Yeah, I would think so. And, you know, he's he's proven himself to be a pretty good hitter over the years. I don't know how much he's practiced lately, but yeah, he, you know, that's a, it, it is a great story. And I think it, it, it gives some, you know, whether it's the fans or guys like us, it, it gives you a reason to sort of watch a, a game that means nothing. And, and I think that it, it, unlike other sports, uh, it kind of is a cool part of, of the respect that they show older guys going out, you know, I mean, basketball does it to some extent, but, there's a there's sort of a camaraderie among players and 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 I think that when when everybody understands that a moment is is a moment like Adam Wainwright getting into the batter's box in front of his home fans is bigger than the other moment which is whether the Reds are going to take umbrage with this I think I think it's really cool and I, and I think you know uh, there's going to be a somewhat similar thing in San Francisco this weekend where Brandon Crawford's going to come off the injured list and he's going to play on Sunday. I don't know how much he's going to play or what he's going to do, but it's just a way for people to say thank you, you know, and I think that's that's a very, very cool part of of the end of a season in so-called meaningless games, because I guarantee you that's not going to be meaningless to either Adam Wainwright or Brandon Crawford in that moment. Yeah, it would be really fun if Clayton Kershaw was the guy on the mound on Sunday for the Dodgers and absolutely it threw would. him a meatball. And, you know, there's <laughs> communication between the two where he's letting him know that's going to happen. And, you know, that right. potentially Crawford's last at bat as a member of the Giants in Oracle Park. All right, Tim, thanks for doing this. Hey, thank you, Buster. It was fun. Bleacher Tweets. All right, Buster, let's hit some Bleacher Tweets. Big fan of the show, P.K. Steinberg tweets, which of these struggling teams has the steepest hill to climb to achieve relevancy? The A's, the Royals, the Rockies, the Yankees, or the Red Sox? P. 
PK, it's got to be the A's, right? We don't even know as we were talking, talking with Tim. We don't even necessarily know that they're going to base. Stanzik, what do you think about the idea that they were that close to making a deal and it didn't happen? That's insane. Like you were saying, absolute tip money. It's weird to, weird to say like $35 million is tip money, but when you're talking about a billion or whatever it was, yeah, it's tip money. It's crazy. 12 billion. It's 12 billion. Yeah, I cannot believe that someone in baseball, like another owner, didn't go to John Fisher and say, here, buddy. I'm going to borrow you. I'm just going to lend you $36 million so you don't get this PR, you don't get hammered with PR. But we we definitely saw during, uh, it was John Fisher, I don't know if you remember this, during the labor stoppage, who moved to reduce the weekly pay of his minor, actually, this was not the labor stoppage, this was during the pandemic, moved to reduce the uh, salaries of his minor leaguers by 100 bucks a week. Yikes. Okay? Think about that. They're, scra- they're scraping by anyway. That is. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the, the A's got a lot of work to do before we even get to the on-field product, right? I mean, I don't even think that's close. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Steve Maff tweets in, does Josh Young still have a chance to win the AL Rookie of the Year award? Buster, he was on one of my fancy teams out for a while, did come back recently. Yeah, a terrific rookie season for him, but Gunnar Henderson's got that award handed to him right now. Yeah, that's a lock. Uh, finally, from Zach Beeson, who writes, on the expansion talks, why is the number always two? Could Major League Baseball choose to expand by four or more? Let's slow down. But Yeah, they, they could, in theory, and there certainly would be cities and maybe even billionaires who would step up and be willing to pay. But uh, I think Major League Baseball has wanted to add two so they could equal out the, you know, get even numbers in both leagues and to put one more team out uh, east and have the eighth division of four teams. That's it for today. My thanks to Hembo, to Stephen A., to Tim Kuhn, to Alden, to Stanzik, to Bruce. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day.